Okay, hi everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So today begins a new series of episodes when we are going to be talking about uh, what I'm going to call the critical social justice movement. Uh, you may know this by any number of different names. Uh, social justice, you may uh, know it by the term wokeness. You may have heard people talk about critical theory or critical race theory or queer theory or fat theory, or any number of other something theories, all of which have come to permeate uh, modern society, modern politics, the modern academy, uh, the modern world, at almost every level. And increasingly, it's becoming clear uh, to me, at least, and to, uh, it seems, lots of other people, that we are stuck with this for a couple of generations, and we better figure out uh, what it is and how we're going to respond to it. Now, um, the terminology is kind of tricky. I'm going to stick with critical social justice movement for reasons I'll explain uh, in a few minutes' time. But just to give you a sense of what I'm going to be trying to do in these episodes, I'm, I've got two aims, basically. The first aim is to try and help uh, us all to understand the uh, philosophy and also the activism of this movement uh, better than we do at the present time. And then critically important, and this is something I've not spoken about so much before, I've talked a little bit and written a little bit about um, understanding the movement previously, but I've not spoken about responding to it. And it's becoming increasingly clear that uh, critical social justice ideology is making its way into so many different contexts, like workplaces, even like some churches, uh, it's making its way into families. It's important for us to understand um, how we are supposed to respond to this uh, ideology, which to many of us is a new thing, um, and we're unprepared for it. Uh, and so a just responsible Christian discipleship means uh, addressing this thing and uh, uh, trying to figure out what to do in the light of it. Now, uh, many of you will know what I'm talking about, at least in broad terms. Some of you will not have a clue uh, what it is I mean by critical social justice or the woke movement or anything of that sort. Now, if that's the case, I've got a couple of suggestions for you. First, please just sit tight, hold on for a couple of minutes, and I'm going to try and give you uh, my outline, my brief outline at least, of the, the background and the leading, uh, the key characteristics of this ideology and why it's so significant. And um, if that's the first you've heard of it, I hope it will become clear at that point why it is that I'm speaking in terms that suggest that this is a problem for Christians and it's a challenge that needs to be wrestled with. Um, uh, if, uh, on the other hand, uh, you do know uh, roughly what it is I'm talking about, you won't need uh, me to explain to you why this is something that Christians need to think about and start taking seriously. But I've got another suggestion um, uh, for you. If, if this terminology is all very new to you, I've actually produced previously, back in 2020, a series of videos uh, introducing uh, what I called critical theory. I think, uh, actually, the name critical social justice is a better term for it, um, uh, given how it speaks about itself. But critical theory is, is basically the same background ideology. Now, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can find a link to that playlist. It's 14 episodes, and they're about 10 or 15 minutes each. Um, so there's a fair amount to get through, but uh, I hope it will be helpful, which outlines in much more detail than, than I'm going to be able to do here uh, what it is that this movement actually claims. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, then either the previous or the next episode uh, on this podcast will be a compilation of all 14 of those previous YouTube um, uh, videos. So uh, either go back one or wait two days and just wait to see what comes. And you'll get um, a compilation of uh, what I uh, produced last year for folks here at All Saints Church, in Presbyterian Church here in Fort Worth in Texas, uh, which is my attempt to summarize and and really in summarizing to critique this ideology. Because when you get to, to this level of, of anti-gospel thinking, um, description is critique to a certain extent. So um, hopefully that um, allows you at least to uh, know how you're going to um, uh, be able to orient yourself to what it is that we're going to be speaking about in the next um, few weeks. Now, just one more piece of housekeeping. I've alluded already to a YouTube video and a podcast uh, a few weeks ago, as most of you will know, uh, the good folks here on the technical team at All Saints in uh, Fort Worth uh, started managing not just a YouTube uh, channel, but also a podcast. So if you're watching this on, a, on YouTube and you would prefer to uh, listen to it on a podcast, then just go down to the show notes, click on the link, and you'll find, uh, Lord willing, uh, a link to um, 
where you can subscribe to the the podcast or you can just search All Saints Presbyterian Church on your favorite podcast player. If on the other hand, you're the other way around, you um, are listening to this on a podcast and you'd rather watch it or show it to other people or share it on video, whatever you want to do, then you'll be able to find it on the All Saints Presbyterian Church YouTube channel. And actually the best place to go for all that stuff, it, it saves you looking in the show notes and scrolling down and fiddling around, just go to www.allsaintskirk.com all saints k-i-r-k all saints kirk.com that's our church website and click the link it's on one of the images that takes you to the podcast and you'll find there all the information you need okay so that's what we're going to be doing apologies for that lengthy pre-introduction now how are we going to be doing it now i'm going to be using this book um which uh is by a gentleman called charles pincourt except um that uh, he's not charles pincourt i'll tell you why in a second and james Lindsay. now james Lindsay, you may have come across before, if you've done any thinking or reading or study on this topic, um, neither of these people are Christians. Um, uh, and uh, Charles Pincourt, nobody knows who he is because he's writing under a pseudonym. Um, I'll come to that in a sec. But um, the book is called um, Counter Wokecraft a field manual for combating the woke in the university and beyond. Let me just say a little bit about the authors first. Um, so Charles Pincourt, um, well, he, he says um, uh, on the uh, first page, I'm a professor at a large North American university. I'm writing this manual under the pen name Charles Pincourt. And nowhere does he say uh, which university he's a professor of. Now, there's a clue as to why this ideology might be a problem. If the man writing a practical critique of it needs to keep not only his name, but the details of his employment secret. Uh, you will know if you've been paying attention uh, to any of the media in uh, recent months and even the last few years that um, people have been fired for less than what this guy says. And so it's entirely explicable that he'd want to keep his uh, uh, identity a secret. He's a professor of physics, he says. Uh, no, sorry, forgive me, professor of engineering. Uh, of me projecting my uh, scientific past onto him. He's a professor of engineering at a large university in the US. Uh, nobody knows where. Um, and I'm kind of glad for his sake he's kept his name secret, though it's interesting that he should feel he has to. James Lindsay um, will be well known uh, to anybody who's done any reading, serious reading at least, or listening on this subject, partly because of this book. I'll scrub it for you. Um, Cynical Theories, um, written by uh, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. That is easily the best uh, one uh, single work on uh, responding to uh, critical theory, um, critical social justice ideology that I've come across. Uh, and uh, on a recent podcast, James Lindsay says, James Lindsay runs a podcast, New Discourses. If you want to listen to more about this stuff, then New Discourses is the podcast to search for. Um, and, and James pointed out, uh, he gave, gave a plug for this book recently in an episode, and he said that he's not really a co-author of this book. He's listed as a co-author, but the text he says is Charles Pincourt's, whoever he is. But um, Charles got in touch with James at an early stage of the publication of the book. They worked on it together. And so it was published under the imprint that James has just launched, New Discourses. Uh, just a month or two back um, and uh, James is listed as a co-author but he emphasizes both um, on that podcast and in the preface that really all the material uh, though some of it is derived from James's work is Charles Pincourt and nobody knows who Charles is well go figure uh, now uh, just a uh, couple of notes on this before I start taking you into it this is the best uh, practical guide that I've found for thinking through how to respond to critical social justice ideology um, I'm afraid that the Christian responses I've seen, many of them are extremely superficial. And um, I think, uh, well, this is something perhaps to talk about on another occasion, but uh, it's striking and disappointing how often Christian responses to ideological uh, problems are quite superficial. They display quite a shallow understanding of the issues. And it's well-intentioned sometimes. It's like, um, this is a problem, the gospel is the answer. But the diagnosis of the problem doesn't go very deep. And how exactly the gospel provides the answer is not spelled out um, in um, uh, much detail. Uh, but in working through this book, my aim is to encourage you to get hold of a copy um, if this is a problem which you're facing. Now, I've got to acknowledge that it might be that your uh, vocation or where you're living or the particular things you get up to during um, uh, the, uh, your working life or other parts of your life, it might be that there's such that this isn't really a, something you've come across. You've never heard um, any of the words I've just been uh, talking about, and or you have heard them, but you're pretty sure they're not going to be a problem where you live. Perhaps you run your own business or something like that. Um, well, if that's the case, then the Lord bless you, and I'm very, very glad that you're in one of those contexts where you're able to, um, in a sense, fight against this ideology by carving out a social and 
uh, vocational niche where it's not a problem. That actually is one good response to it. Um, but it should be recognized that it is actually, at least tacitly, a response. And it's not a response that everybody can make. So um, if you find these podcasts, it's like, well, this doesn't really seem to be uh, relevant to me. Well, accept my apologies, if you would, in advance, that the, the next month or so of this podcast won't be so um enjoyable or won't seem so relevant to you um i hope you find other good things to do with your time and come back and join us when we switch on to something else but you might want to pay attention anyway just in case on the off chance it becomes useful either for you or maybe for somebody else uh, in the future okay let's jump into this book um bear with me a second coffee time Okay, let's jump into this book. Um, and I'm going to not read every paragraph or even um, anything from every section, but I want to lead you through it in such a way that I'm able to help you to, to get the best stuff out of it. And for reasons that will become obvious, it really is worth doing that. Um, it's designed, um, Charles Pincourt explains, for universities. Now, the, the subtitle says that, the field manual for combating the woke in the university and beyond. Let me read from page one, paragraph one. The purpose of the manual is to help those who are concerned about the perspective, but who are not very familiar with it, those who understand that something is wrong but don't have the background to understand and resist the critical social justice takeover of our universities. Um, so one of my aims then in uh, working through it with you is to re-articulate what it has to say for different contexts. I guess you could kind of do it yourself. You could, you could see how the sort of academic uh, principles that are articulated here, or rather the principles that are articulated here that have relevance to academic contexts, could be applied to other situations like in business or in schools or even in churches, perish the thought, although you know it's becoming true, uh, or in family relationships and elsewhere. But I want to try and do some of that work for you or rather with you, um, just to try and make that leap. The second thing I want to do is um, I want to recognize that this is written by two guys who um, certainly James Lindsay isn't a Christian and Charles Pincourt seems not to be. And so there are one or two shortcomings um, that uh, re-reading it or re-articulating it from a Christian perspective would allow us to overcome. Either things that, uh, tactics that are morally questionable or things that he's missed that he could have said if he were a Christian or indeed um, one or two unfair criticisms of um, uh, religion in general, which I think is just worth uh, mentioning briefly at least in passing. So... Uh, that's what we're going to be doing, working through this. Now, let me give you a brief summary of the book. It's got three chapters. It's really thin. I mean, it's like 90-something pages. And the first chapter is a description of um, the woke ideology. Uh, the second chapter is a description of woke tactics, which, as we will see, are inseparable from the ideology. One of the biggest mistakes people make in, in approaching this whole uh, area of study from the point of view of trying to critique it is to imagine it's just an ideology rather than uh, an activist movement. It is an activist movement and not just an ideology. And so understanding woke craft, that is to say how the woke go about their business, is actually a key to um, understanding the movement itself. And then thirdly, and this is the really significant contribution of this book, the third chapter um, uh, lives up to the title, Counter Woke Craft. It is tactics and strategies for countering uh, woke ideology, um, how um, people who are influenced by and seeking to push forward this critical social justice agenda go about their business, countering that what they're up to in your business, in your school, wherever else it is. Um, let me read a brief uh, paragraph or two um, from, actually, no, I don't need to, I've just summarized it. All that is on page um, uh, Roman 9 in the forward by James Lindsay, so you can read that. Okay, so what I want to do now is briefly, um, I'm going to give you a, uh, an overview of the strengths and weaknesses of the book, and if uh, hopefully that will persuade you to, to press pause or to when you get home uh, to go and buy yourself a copy. And then I'm going to uh, address one of those weaknesses by giving you a broad um, philosophical, historical overview of the movement, which this book doesn't do. And then uh, I'll just read through uh, his summary, Charles Pincourt's summary, and that will probably take us another 20 minutes. And by the time I've done that, you'll be ready to lie down in a darkened room or do something slightly more enjoyable. Um, I have found myself at times... I mentioned this at the start of the um, previous series of uh, podcasts that I mentioned before, uh, videos, sorry, that I mentioned before, uh, feeling like um, uh, Jude 
the New Testament author who said, and this is paraphrasing slightly, I'd much rather be writing about Jesus Christ and the salvation he's won for us, but I've got to deal with all this crazy stuff which is cropping up in churches and tearing people away from their faith. Um, that's honestly how I feel reading this. It is not enjoyable. It's not particularly fun doing these podcasts, but I, I'm afraid I think it has to be done. Um, so anyway, enough rambling and, and waggling on the tea, as golfers used to say. Let me get into making a few comments about the strengths of this book and then its weaknesses. First, uh, the first obvious strength, if you read through this book, it is clearly grounded in a very deep understanding of the issues. Okay, it, um, the guy clearly understands what he's talking about. It's written in a, um, uh, it's written how, in the way you'd expect a physicist or an engineer to write. All the s- sections and subsections are numbered like they would be in a scientific textbook. But that just makes it easy to navigate, and it gives it the feel of um, of a field manual. I guess as a point that James Lindsay made. It's kind of um, he's a scientist as well. I guess so. Um, second thing to point out is it's a really dense text. So it's, it's 93 pages, but it's pretty small type. And it's 93 pages of stuff that you need to think about. I don't know about you. I find myself um, frequently frustrated by 120-page Christian paperbacks where you can read sort of 20 pages and not feel like you've actually learned or even read anything. It's just waffle the whole time. And, well, this isn't like that. I mean, I'm, I'm today I was reading again just page 4, 5, and 6, um, uh, his brief summary of the woke worldview and it's massively dense and so this is one of the reasons why it's worth going through it in this kind of podcast format because each paragraph you can expand on a little bit and just try and explore its implications and it's worth thinking really carefully about in other words don't try and um, uh, read this in 10 minute snatches in the dentist waiting room you know, sit down with a pen and paper and actually work at it um, and hopefully i'll be able to help you to do that uh, above all the third great strength which i've hinted at previously it is practical in orientation um, charles pincourt gives concrete um, uh, examples of the kinds of tactics that you are going to face as social justice activists try to take over your business if you run a business that's what eventually somebody is going to try to do unless this movement is stopped. And Charles Pinkor explains how they're going to do it. More than that, he explains how to respond, what you can do to actually win in the boardroom or in the discussion with the human resources manager or whatever it is. I've been listening to um, Aaron Wren recently, um, uh, who's got some interesting, although sometimes uh, it makes my eyes pop open a little bit, some of the stuff on his podcast. Uh, he points out that... Um, Christians often don't play to win. Uh, we play for scraps, he says. And and I, I was listening to it and thinking, I, I think I see what you mean. That, that there are times at which we, it's almost like we act as though we don't really believe we're in a battle. Um, and uh, we have to win against this. If we don't, we, well, I'm postman, so I think we are going to win. I'm not sure whether Aaron is. Um, maybe more on that another time. But um, uh, the, this is a an ideological and practical and activism-oriented conflict that we have to get into and have to be ready to to. Um, not ignore and we will need concrete suggestions for how to actually deal with that i'm delighted to say that it seems to me um that uh, charles pincourt is providing them okay so briefly weaknesses what does this book not do well the first thing it doesn't do is provide a really detailed uh historical philosophical background to critical social justice um now that in one sense that's not criticism it's 90 something pages i mean give the guy a break um uh, the the other reason why I, I don't I don't think um, that's such a shortcoming is because um, this book the one I mentioned before by um, uh, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay um, does that very well but that does so in three or four hundred pages which is the kind of depth you need to understand this um, uh, but what Counter Wokecraft does is it gives a very very brief. Um, kind of synopsis of where the philosophical and historical background of this movement ends up in 2021. Um, if you're familiar with linguistics, it's a little bit like the difference between a diachronic and a, a synchronic analysis of, of words. Um, a diachronic analysis will, will take you on a long, tedious and exhausting route through the development of um, uh, how words are used through time. That's what Lindsay and um, Pluckrose do in their book. What Pincourt does here is uh, synchronic um, analysis. It's just telling you where we've ended up, how words used now in linguistics, or how, what does this ideology mean now? Um, and it, it means that it's not bad. It means it is actually simpler to understand if you can spend the time getting into the dense prose. 
But what it doesn't do is show you where this stuff comes from historically. So in a couple of minutes, I'm going to give you my the briefest attempt that I can make to sketch that background for you, because I think it's important. And it, in a sense, it's a shortcoming of this book, but it would have taken another 20 pages and it might have derailed the overall purpose or duplicated some of the stuff in Lindsay and um, Pluckrose's book to do that. So no great problem there. But please, please, please do be aware that you need to have some grasp of this in order to understand critical social justice uh, thinking thoroughly. Again, just on the subject of understanding things thoroughly, um, the best stuff I found to read is, read is by James Lindsay. It's a shame that the best stuff combating an ideology which is so avowedly anti-Christian is written by an unbeliever. Uh, there is some stuff by Neil Shenvey online, um, who's a Christian apologist. That's pretty good. But again, he doesn't really give the historical and philosophical background, although he's got quite a lot of stuff um, talking about engaging as a Christian. But it, it, I don't want to criticise it. He's doing a good job. I, I don't think he does, I don't think anybody does as good a job as James Lindsay does. Um, and there is other stuff available written by Christians. And I just don't, I haven't yet read anything that I think is really good. Maybe somebody's written something that I'm not aware of. Well, that'd be great. But the danger is we go, we wade into these debates like a guy taking a knife to a gunfight. And then we wonder why we get kind of blown into the next next street by the arguments we face um it's not good enough uh second weakness and this actually is a critique of the book there are one or two points at which um pincourt criticizes what what he describes i think as a religious worldview um uh yeah on page five and i think i'm afraid he just misunderstands uh, as you'd expect somebody who's not writing from a christian perspective he misunderstands the um, ideological and philosophical depth and strength of a Christian worldview. And so he, he sort of dismisses religious worldviews, along with superstitions of other kinds, um, he, as he would frame it, um, with a wave of the hand. And I don't think that means that the book is devoid of value. Far from it. It just means that he's he's mischaracterized Really, he's mischaracterized the, the ideological and rational ground that he's standing on. And it, we need some kind of response at that level. But those are the, the weaknesses, really. But basically, it's a very, very good book. And so um, what are we going to do the rest of the time? Goodness gracious, 21 minutes. Okay, bear with me. Um, what I'm going to do, uh, two things. I'm going to give you my um, uh, mad dash through the philosophical and historical background to critical social justice ideology. And that will serve belatedly as a description of the movement for those of you who still haven't got the first clue what I'm talking about. Apologies to you, okay? Um, but it's coming, it's coming. And then second, I'll go through um, how uh, Pincourt characterizes the woke worldview. So, all right, um, if after that you still don't know, uh, have the first clue what I'm talking about, then it really is my fault and you should try and find something else more informative to listen to. But I hope that won't be the case. And I hope that by the end of this, you'll think, okay, I can see where this is coming from. I can see I need to get some handle on this. I can see it's going to be a problem if I don't get a handle on it. I'm going to get hold of this book by Pincourt and I might even tune into the next podcast. All right, let's go. So um, where did critical social justice come from? You could trace it all the way back to the 16th century, but the most obvious immediate philosophical precursor to critical social justice ideology is Marxism. Marx taught people to define their identity on the basis of their membership of economic stroke social classes. On the one hand, there were the rich bourgeoisie, the oppressors in Marx's thought. On the other hand, Marx said, there are the poor workers, the oppressed. And your identity in the world, your place in the world, and all the things that you did were, in Marxian thought, defined by which of those two classes you were a member of. Were you a rich, oppressive, bourgeois overlord, or were you one of the poor, oppressed workers? And Marx, of course, if you've read your history, you will know that he encouraged the oppressed workers to rise up and overthrow their Marxist, their um, bourgeois oppressors. And that traces its roots back, right back to the middle of the 19th century. Um, now, uh, the promised Marxist revolution never came. Uh, and uh, in the early mid 20th century, uh, Influence, uh, thinkers influenced by Marx were left scratching their heads as to why, with one or two very minor and brief exceptions, the workers didn't rise up. 
and to overthrow their their masters. And there are a couple of reasons why they didn't do that. The first is that it turns out that um, uh, Marx is wrong, actually, that people are defined in those terms, and that actually being one of those workers turned out to be a way in which uh, people could have their lot in life improved. Um, they could gradually, especially over decades and generations, move from being extremely poor to being less poor to being comparatively well off. And especially in countries where freer markets were allowed to operate, like in the, in the West, people became rich compared to their forebears very, very quickly within the space of just a few generations. If you look at the increase in wealth from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century, you'll see exactly what I mean in Western countries. And even in the uh, uh, countries in the East, broadly speaking, where uh, Marxist political ideology still um, remained firmly in control, and people didn't have the economic and market freedoms that they had, for example, in America and in Britain and in parts of Western Europe. Nonetheless, it became apparent that um, simply being a member of an economically oppressed, quote-unquote, class wasn't going to be enough for people to be encouraged to rise up and throw off, throw off their oppressors. And so in the middle of the 20th century, philosophers in the so-called Frankfurt School, like, uh, so-called because of its um, uh, uh, connection with uh, the university in Frankfurt, Germany, began to apply Marx's, Marx's analyses of economic and social, uh, economic and political status, really, to other spheres of life, like race or gender um, and so on. And so instead of um, saying, well, as Marx did, you're the poor oppressed workers, you should rise up and throw off the shackles of the rich bourgeoisie oppressors. Uh, the Frankfurt School applied the analysis, let's say, and m most um, significantly really in the West, at least in the mid and late 20th century, to issues of race, so-called, black and white, encouraging black oppressed people to rise up and throw off the oppression of their white oppressive overlords. And um, in effect, this, this had great attraction because it turns out that those um, cultural factors um, had a greater purchase on people's um, uh, view of themselves, if you like. Um, and so uh, the Frankfurt School um, generated uh, a whole spectrum, a whole range of different spectra, rather, uh, of uh, oppression, oppressed, um, sorry, oppressed, oppressor uh, classes in which people were encouraged to locate themselves. Now, the uprising that was envisaged by the Frankfurt School was not to be altogether peaceful. Uh, one of the most uh, prominent, in fact, the leading member of um, the Frankfurt School for a while, Herbert Marcuse, who you may have heard of, wrote an essay in 1965 called Repressive Tolerance, in which he argued that physical violence, though theoretically um, reprehensible on ethical grounds, was nonetheless justified if it was exercised by the oppressed against their oppressors. And, and in the particular example he gives in this essay, Repressive Tolerance, is by uh, political conservatives being the oppressors. It, um, it's justified for the oppressed um, political progressives to rise up with physical violence against um, their capitalist uh, right-wing conservative oppressors. Now, the best way to get into that essay, well, you could just grab it off the internet or from the book in which it was published, but there's a, a series of podcasts by James Lindsay in which he uh, just reads through the essay and comments on it. Again, it's a New Discourses podcast, really well worth reading. It was a few months ago when he went through it. Um, but but taking all that together, what you've got is um, uh, class consciousness in which people are encouraged not just to think of themselves as influenced by, but their identity determined by their membership of one or more classes and the oppressed to rise up, if necessary, with violence against their um, ideological and cultural oppressors. Now, alongside this development, um, you've got the development, the, the rise in the mid and late 20th century of postmodernism. And at this point, um, we turn to Michel Foucault, who um, in many ways is the father of postmodernism. He's known for the claim that, um, to put it uh, most simply, uh, truth equals power. Uh, to put it more uh, 
in a more nuanced and precise way, um, all claims to truth are in fact disguised attempts to wield political power. Um, the background here is um, the postmodern insistence that either there's no such thing as uh, absolute objective truth, or if there is, it can't be known with any certainty. And so when people make claims which look like truth claims in history or the sciences or the social sciences or just claims about how we should behave in the modern world or whatever it is, in fact, what they're trying to do is to disguise uh, attempts at manipulation or attempts to impose power as truth claims in order to legitimate them. And so the, the proper aim then of all discourse, all, all discussion, should not aim at trying to find the truth of any proposition in politics or history or science or the social sciences or in how a business ought to be run or anything like that. The proper aim of all discourse, rather, is to uh, unmask how, to, how the manipulation is being done. Uh, that's what's known as um, deconstruction. To deconstruct um, a truth claim in postmodern parlance is to expose how this claim to truth is being used to uh, keep the oppressors in their positions of power over against um, the oppressed. Now, add to that the work of um, Derek Bell. Derek Bell was a... Um, he was the first um, black man to be a Harvard Law professor. He was in the 50s. No, no, not 50s, later than that, 70s. Um, uh, 1950s was the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which he commented on. But Derek Bell insists, he, he, he analyzed the uh, way in which these different um, uh, groups, particularly um, black versus white, as he characterized it, um, how the uh, oppression-oppressor narrative made, its, um, made itself felt in legal contexts. Um, I mentioned the Brown versus Board of Education decision. You remember the U.S. Supreme Court in 1954 ruled against the uh, separate but equal doctrine that had um, prevailed before that and insisted that those facilities were inherently uh, unjust and unequal and they violated the 14th Amendment. Well, Derek Bell um, uh, claimed that um, actually, that decision um, was motivated by cynical self-interest on, on the part of the, the white oppressors who made it. Uh, the reason was because um, racism, uh, he insisted, is the ordinary state of society. It's not that um, uh, the uh, okay, mostly people are good people, but then occasionally they do racist things. If they're white people, they're ordinarily racist. Therefore, this decision uh, the decision of the Supreme Court was a racist decision. And indeed, even when it looked like it was an attempt to uh, further the cause and, and in, uh, increase equality between uh, black and white people uh, at that stage in American history, in fact, it was motivated by the attempt of white people to forward their own interests. Now, he, he coined the term critical race theory to refer to his theoretical framework for this. There's a whole bunch more detail, which um, we could go into, which probably shouldn't do here. But it is he who first coined the term critical race theory to refer to this, this framework. And so, of course, what that means then is that in every context, if you buy into that picture, you're not asking the question, um, is racist behavior present in this interaction? Rather, what you're saying is, well, we know that racist uh, behavior is um, uh, involved here. The question is, where is it? And you find that kind of thing making its way into the modern uh, critical social justice seminars. We'll have more on that another time. Now, Kimberly Crenshaw was a student of Derrick Bell, and she uh, took his analysis on one step further to make the additional claim that as well as being defined by, let's say, black, white, male, female, uh, all these other different um, uh, oppressed, oppressor, polarities, different groups that we're, mem we're members of. We are also uh, members of multiple groups all at the same time. And the membership of multiple oppressed groups intensifies and accentuates the sense of oppression that um, people, 
experience in day-to-day life. She coined the term intersection to refer to this phenomenon. So, for example, a white man, like myself, exists at the intersection of um, white as opposed to black and male as opposed to female. Um, By contrast, a black lady, black woman, exists at the intersection of two uh, oppressed group identities, uh, black and female. And remember, it's he and those who went before him in this school of thought who insisted that those things define a person. Um, and and moreover, that um, being a member of more than one oppressed group doesn't just add the uh, oppressed characteristics, it so to speak multiplies them. Um, and um, the, uh, the critique that she made, it's interesting, at one point she critiques uh, the postmodern framework which preceded her, um, whereas Foucault and those um, in his school of thought had insisted that the aim of all discourse is to deconstruct the power claims that are implicit in the truth claims that are being made. She pointed out that, well, those who are oppressed, or she claimed that those who are oppressed, especially those who exist at the intersection of multiple um, oppressed identities, can't deconstruct their plight. They don't have the social power to do so. And so the another way of looking at it is the, the, the one thing that is objectively true in all human interactions and in all human history is the existence of the oppression of the marginalized. And the aim of all of life then has to turn on the exposure of that oppression. The only uh, objective thing in the world is the oppression of the oppressed. And this is then picked up in the contemporary social justice movement in a way that I'll highlight in just a second. But just to summarize where we've got to, you add all this together and you sort of follow the train of thought as it's been accumulating. You've got a picture in which all people are defined not by their individual identity, not by the individual characteristics, who they are as human beings individually, or by the fact that we're all human and we share that identity all with one another. We're rather defined by our membership of various overlapping and intersecting oppressed or oppressor groups. Uh, Within that framework, it's inevitable that all white people are racist, all men are sexist, all straight people are homophobic, and so on. And the aim of all of life is the pursuit of, or should be, the pursuit of social justice. That is, the eradication of this injustice. The aim of all of life is that. It has to be. Um, paradoxically, any attempt by the oppressors to forward that social justice agenda is subject to the criticism that, pe- that it's um, not only doomed to fail, um, but it's uh, motivated by cynical self-interest and actually compounds the injustice it's seeking to uh, f- put forward, to seeking to oppose. Uh, There's no possibility of reasoned discussion. After all, Foucault's right. There's no knowledge. There's only power. And so anybody who says, well, let's sit down and talk about this, is simply trying to forge a context in which their power can be cemented by truth claims, which are in fact nothing of the sort. They're just disguised political claims. Um, Any attempt to push back against criticism of uh, you personally, if if, like, like me, for example, you're a white man and you attempt to argue that you're not sexist and you're not racist, well, that would just be taken as evidence of your guilt, um, or even to quote, um, I think it's Robin Robin D'Angelo, white fragility, or so brittle and unable to take this criticism and just remain silent, that your your protestations of innocence are evidence of your fragility. And in the end, even physical, physical violence is legitimate in the pursuit of the social justice that we're all required to engage in. Now, it's just amazing to me, in one sense, um, this is going to be felt everywhere where it's not opposed. Um, In today's world, you've increasingly got um, companies, entities in the commercial space um, that are jumping fully on board with the uh, critical social justice movement. And where you'll find this, let's say if you work for Starbucks, um, you will have at some point, excuse me a sec, you work for Starbucks, you will at some point have been put on a um, social justice um, uh, training seminar or some kind of diversity awareness seminar or unconscious bias training seminar or something. In fact, I think Starbucks closed all its stores about a year and a bit ago to put all of its staff through these training programs in the pursuit of social justice. Now, how that happened? 
was by somebody or some group of people making their way into the decision-making structures of the company and uh, pointing out that we we're not doing enough as a company to uh, oppose the injustice that is inherent in our white uh, male uh, cis-normative um, capitalist hegemony. Um, and so what we need to do is to become aware of our um, racism, become aware of our inherent sexism, and we need to train our employees to to recognise their uh, their complicity in this guilt. Now, what the Starbucks executives who allowed this apparently don't realise is that that won't be enough for the critical social justice advocates. At some point, this is my prediction for the day, okay? At some point, um, in five to ten years' time, there's going to be a board meeting um, at Starbucks or American Airlines or somewhere, some company that's pushing these agendas. And somebody is going to ask, so how much of our budget are we spending on anti-racist um, diversity training and um, critical social justice training and so on? And uh, the uh, budget manager for the board or whoever's responsible for setting budgets is proudly going to say something like, well, we're spending 4% of revenue on, on these programs. Thinking that that will be enough. And the um, critical social justice advocates, who by then will be in the boardroom, uh, will look back with horror and say, well, what on earth are we spending the other 96% on? Do we not realise that devoting ourselves to anything other than critical social justice activism is morally culpable, it's morally reprehensible, and we are participating in an injustice? That's going to be the claim that's made. And it's just astonishing in the sense that the naivety of um, companies that are seeking to be progressive in this kind of way and don't realize where they are literally, um, not literally, metaphorically sawing off the branch that their company is built on. You think you work for an airline or you think you work for a coffee shop. Um, in some of these cases, you don't anymore. You work for an entity whose, whose role in the world is to forward this critical social justice agenda. Now, most people who identify in some way with this movement are not aware of this. Um, they've been hoodwinked by the terminology, which is deliberately designed to obfuscate and bring confusion to the debate. And we'll get to that um, later in this book by Pincourt, where he identifies different people, there's different uh, points on the spectrum of um, woke advocacy. Um, but it, we've got to be clear at this point, um, uh, this movement is not going to stop until it's either won, which it won't in the end, or it's completely defeated. And I do think that the gospel is the only hope for its defeat, but I do think as Christians we need to think a little harder than, uh, well, I need to think harder and work harder at uh, figuring out how that is that defeat is going to be brought about. Um, Jesus is going to win in history, and he's going to win in and through his church, faithfully seeking to uh, promote and proclaim the gospel to the world. And we need to promote and proclaim the gospel to the world in ways which stand against the actual problems, the actual ideological opposition to the gospel that we face, not some imaginary opposition, which means taking seriously what this uh, ideology has to say. Okay, so let me just jump back into this book, um, and I'm going to give you... Uh, a brief now summary of how Charles Pincourt um, describes where th this has brought us to. And you'll recognize in this uh, echoes of some of the philosophical and historical background that I've just sketched for you. I know it's uh, complex and tangled, and there's a whole bunch more that we could have talked about and didn't, but hopefully you'll recognize in what I'm about to read and then comment on echoes of what I've just said. And then I think by the end of that, we'll all be ready for break. And um, uh, we'll call this podcast to a halt, uh, and we'll be back next time. But um, Pincourt uh, highlights three principles, which um, he says, quote, bind the many different flavors of woke together. He calls them, and I'm quoting now from page four, paragraph one, two, three, the knowledge principle, the political principle, and the subject principle. So uh, again, the terminology will be unfamiliar to you. This is how Charles Pincourt characterizes the end result of the philosophical uh, development through history that I've just described. Three principles. First, the knowledge principle. Quote, there are a few, sorry, <laughs> there are a few important elements to the knowledge principle. The first is that while reality itself is not denied or questioned, it is considered impossible for us to know its true nature. Echoes of postmodernism, Foucault, you see that? 
quote again. The reason it's impossible for, know, to, for us to know about reality's true nature is that any knowledge we think we have is actually only socially constructed, defined through language, by the culture in which we live. See, that's postmodernism in a nutshell. That's Foucauldianism. Quote again. Critical for this perspective is the fact that different cultures have different understandings about the nature of the world. After examining the political principle, the importance of this last point will be, be clearer. Right, so that is just, that's postmodern epistemology. Knowledge um, of the world is not possible. There is still an objective world, at least some postmodernists think that. I think he's being slightly generous here. Um, but it can't be known objectively. All knowledge is socially constructed. Second, then, the political principle quote, is that not only is knowledge socially constructed, but knowledge is constructed by oppressor groups in society at the expense of oppressed groups, unquote. So again, you recognize echoes of Foucault. It's strongly influenced by postmodernism. And you could even describe the woke movement as applied postmodernism. It has been described in that way. Um, quote, the construction of knowledge is done through language whose rules are also determined by the groups with the power by groups with the power to do so, i.e. oppressor groups. So it's very common, for example, to find um, science described as a white male Western paradigm. You'll say something about science in, in a moment or two. Um, and what's being claimed by that? Well, when you hear somebody claim that science is a white Western male paradigm, behind that is the postmodern insistence that no... Um, system of thought, scientific or anything else, can give access to objective truth. All of it is socially constructed, in this case, by oppressive, white, male, Western, remember Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell, um, and, and of course, um, Herb Marcuse and the, the Frankfurt School, oppressive groups within society at the expense of the oppressed. Moreover, Knowledge is constructed in such a way that helps maintain the oppressive role for oppressor groups and to prevent oppressed groups being liberated from their oppression. Again, you see the echoes of postmodernism, and you see, therefore, why um, social justice activists do not want to engage in conversation. They do not want to engage in conversation with somebody who says, well, let's sit down and figure out the truth of things, because such a claim is simply the attempt to exercise political power by the oppressed, under the guise of, let's say, historic or scientific claims. Um, now, Pinkhorn uh, talks a little bit more about this. Uh, and I want to read the next paragraph, still on page five. It's the third um, paragraph down. Let me read it but this and make a comment or two about it, because at this point, um, this, there's a, an additional feature that Christians ought to be aware of, because it's a weakness of our own way of thinking about um, these matters. This is taken to imply he continues, that not only is any knowledge socially constructed, but it is by definition biased and can't be an accurate representation of reality. We've seen that already. Continues. This, together with the fact that different cultures have different understandings of the nature of the world, implies that no worldview is more authoritative than any other. As such, all worldviews are, epistemically, equivalent in terms of their ability to know anything about reality and amount simply to different stories about reality. No worldview, in other words, this is me commenting on him, no worldview can claim uh, to have any objective insight into the way things are that some other worldview doesn't have. It's just another story about the real world. There is no path to objective knowledge of the truth of anything. So, for example, now here is the point at which uh, Christians, like us, need to think really, really carefully about what he's saying. So, for example, the scientific worldview has no greater claim to understanding reality than any other story. That is, a scientific worldview is no truer than a religious worldview or even than a superstitious worldview. That's the point he's criticizing. He's criticizing the claim made by um, critical social justice advocates that the scientific worldview has no uh, privilege over religious or superstitious worldviews. And at this point, of course, Christians, we find ourselves wanting to look in both directions at once. We find ourselves thinking, hold on, um, I don't like the idea of being lumped in with superstitious. Um, and I also agree 
that there are aspects of life, there are questions about the world to which my religious, quote-unquote, worldview does give uh, accurate, truthful answers that a, a scientific worldview cannot give. There are many religious questions, quote-unquote, that as Christians we want to talk about, where we think science has given us wrong answers. And so what are we supposed to do about this? Well, we, the answer is to make some careful distinctions and think as clearly as we can about um, what's true about these claims and what's false about them. That is, what's true uh, um, about the claims that are being criticised here and, and what's false about them. So, um, where might it be the case that we want to criticise uh, scientific overreach, say? Where is it that we'd um, want to say something which is not in agreement with uh, critical social justice ideology, but which nonetheless um, pushes back against scientific hegemony? Well, at least two contexts. There are specific theories that are wrong um, and which are sustained by ideological concerns. You could even say, and I, and I hesitate to say this, but to put it most provocatively, um, here's an example where the end result of the claims of social justice ideology are actually right. That some scientific claims are not true in themselves and are sustained by ideological or political um, uh, power, uh, uh, their, their, their attempts rather, let me put this more precisely, um, they are uh, disguised attempts to leverage ideological or political power. Um, so let's say Darwinism. I happen to think that Darwinism is just false. I don't think that um, uh, Darwinism provides an explanation for the origin of biological diversity, much less human life in the world. I just don't think it's true. And I think it's been demonstrated that there are, even just from a scientific standpoint, um, Stephen C. Meyer, for example, has demonstrated profound and fundamental mathematical and information theoretic problems with uh, Darwinian evolution. And, and these are not taken seriously in the scientific mainstream, not because they're bad scientific arguments, but they're not taken seriously in the scientific mainstream because of ideological concerns to protect scientism, which I think is a better word for what's going on here, um, from uh, ideological or, in this case, Christian challenge. So, um, at one level, I want to say, um, there are contexts in which, yes, a scientific worldview is no truer than a scientific worldview, or in fact, more precisely, the claims of the Christian worldview are right and the claims of some scientists are wrong. But there's another um, case in which um, we have to be careful how we approach this. Um, that's where you've got a scientific theory which might be right, but which is being leveraged politically. And of course, the obvious case we're all thinking of here um, in uh, late 2021 uh, are some branches of medicine um, specifically related to vaccines, um, quantitative um, epidemiology, um, so in other words measuring the, the growth and the spread of pandemics. It seems clear, like let me say something uncontroversial, okay, it seems pretty clear that um, uh, there is such a thing as this COVID stuff that's going around, but at the same time, it seems abundantly obvious that it is being leveraged politically. And I don't know whether this gets this um, podcast cancelled from YouTube. We'll see when we see how good their um, um, uh, artificial intelligence uh, audio filters are. But anyway, um, we do want to say, uh, we want to somewhat de-privilege the absoluteness of a scientific materialist outlook on life because it can either be politically leveraged or it can be just plain wrong. But at the same time, Here's another danger on the other side for Christians, that we end up being sceptical about every kind of scientific claim, and we make ourselves vulnerable to being sucked into a critical social justice framework. It goes like this. Um, critical social justice says um, science has massively overreached and doesn't have any um, greater uh, purchase on the truth than other, let's say, religious outlooks on the world. And we find ourselves wanting to say, yeah, I agree with that. And so you get sucked into a critical social justice mindset. And in the process, you don't, don't only buy into a whole bunch of toxic ideology coming from um, critical social justice activists. We also end up 
just plain wrong in the science. And the most obvious example of this, is, of course, is how some of our Christian friends think about homeopathy. Whatever you might say about, let's say, um, there are herbal, herbal remedies that work, right? There are plenty of herbal remedies that work. But um, I was reading the other day about um, a, uh, a, tr- a homeopathic treatment for uh, flu um, called Oscillo. I think it's, it's um, the technical name is Oscillococcinum, um, which is a 10 to the 400th power dilution of an extract of duck liver. Now, a dilution that great means that there is not the slightest possibility of any of the duck liver being in any of the um, tablets that you take. And there are only 10 to the 82 atoms in the known universe. So there's no way that a dilution of 10 to the 400th power is going to have any of the medicine uh, in it. And so anybody who claims that that works because you're receiving any kind of treatment is just doesn't know what they're talking about. If you don't know what the numbers mean, then well, please don't spend your money on it. Um, but uh, the point to be made there is that a lot of Christians buy into that uh, framework of, um, in that case, medicine, because of a scepticism about science, and the same scepticism about science will make them vulnerable to critical social justice reasoning. And so there's a kind of complex lack of awareness of some of these issues. Um, In fact, the truth is that some scientific tools Uh, Not the scientific worldview per se, but some scientific tools are a better guide to truth in some domains. And the reason they are is because properly understood scientific tools are a product of the Christian worldview rather than in opposition to it. Um, So all that is to say, um, just as just a parenthesis on the... Uh, this, the comment that he makes, a scientific worldview is no truer than a religious worldview. We have to think as carefully as we can about what's right about that uh, claim and what's wrong about it. Otherwise, we end up uh, making ourselves vulnerable to all kinds of uh, foolishness. Finally, and uh, briefly we'll do this, the subject principle, quote, is that individuals are primarily defined by their group identity, brackets, white, female, black, European, cisgendered, etc., that is to say that they are subjected to their group identity in society, which is why I call this the subject principle. This is how the post-structuralists, also known as the high postmodernists, often referred to individuals, i.e. as subjects. He continues, this implies that people are oppressed or oppressors according to what group or groups they are identified with. Similarly, it implies that how people behave is primarily a function of group identity and taken together with the political principle that their behaviour supports and helps perpetuate the oppressive systems around them unconsciously. Echoes of Derek Bell, but taken to the next next step. Um, a white person, for example, he continues, simply can't help but behave in ways that perpetuate their oppression over non-white people in society. Importantly, it also implies that black people behave in such a way that perpetuates their oppression, although from a different perspective. Um, so what's going on here? Um, This is uh, group identity and identity politics uh, being screwed down and, again, amplified to the next level, where it becomes clear that one's group identity not only determines who you are as a person, but how you behave and even a moral evaluation of your actions. Next paragraph um, on top of page six, and we're going to finish with this. A corollary of this principle is that since individual behavior is defined by one's identity, individuals are responsible or accountable for actions associated with any identity to which they are associated. That's what I mean by the concentrated, uh, high-intensity prose. There's a lot there to think about. It means that a white person is guilty of doing things that other white people are accused of doing. Even in the past, as such, the oppressive act of one member of a group is the oppressive act of all members of that group. This accountability is valid across time. The oppressive act of a member of a group at one time can be attributed to a group identity and therefore to its members at another time. And that's what lies behind all the stuff that you've been hearing recently about reparations and so on. Why would you expect somebody today to pay reparations for actions that were done uh, before they were even born? Well, it's simple because your your, uh, identity and therefore your moral standing in society is determined exhaustively by the group of which you're a member. Um, and therefore you're morally culpable for actions committed by that group. Okay, I think we've had um, enough of this. Just to recap what we've done, we've um, begun just with um, a brief introduction to the book. Um, uh, this book uh, that I've mentioned already, um, Counter-Wokecraft by Charles Pincourt, James Lindsay. 
Um, it's the best practical guide that I've found for dealing with this stuff. Um, and I've given you a brief rundown of its strengths, its weaknesses, um, at a little bit of length, and I apologize for that. Um, I've given what it lacks, that is some kind of historical survey of where the critical social justice movement is coming from. And then finally, I've taken you through the first uh, short section in chapter one, the, the three principles that summarize the um, uh, the woke uh, worldview. We're going to come back next time and I'll take you a little bit further through um, how he describes uh, both the character of this ideology and then how it functions in the world. Um, and then after that, we'll get on to how to deal with, um, uh, how to deal practically with it in the workplace and elsewhere. Uh, but I think that's a good place to stop for now. Um, God bless and I'll see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>